Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. When it comes to Christmas season, we, we have a tendency, especially if we've been raised in the church, we have a tendency to think about babes and mangers and, and you know stars and Bethlehem and shepherds. The tendency for us is to jump right into the Christmas story. And, and, and for most of us, it's, it's all about the imagery of Christmas. I, I don't know when that happened for you, when the imagery of Christmas first started showing up, but you know, you, you, maybe it was when you walked in today and realized we had the tree up and the, you know, the set has changed and Brett's going to do a Christmas message. Um, but but you know, we kind of think about Jesus and born in a manger and all that kind of stuff. There's imagery that goes with it, and that's, I mean, that makes sense, and it, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way. But here's what's interesting. When Matthew and John launched into the story of Jesus... And these were two of the guys that, that got to write the Gospels. The other two were Luke and Mark. Luke and Mark were not disciples. They, they, uh, they were not eyewitnesses. But Matthew and John were both with Jesus throughout his ministry. So they sat down to write the story of Jesus. But neither, of, neither one of them began with, once upon a time, there was this woman named Mary, and an angel appeared to her, and the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, and the angel, and it didn't start there. Both Matthew and John, when, when they start the story of Jesus, neither one started with baby Jesus. Both of them started somewhere else. It is as if Matthew and John realized the story we're about to tell is unlike any other story that's ever been told. We cannot begin the story in a typical way. And knowing that we would get all caught up in the narrative of Jesus' life, you know, we love the miracles, we love the drama, we love the tension. We, we love all that stuff, but it's almost as if Matthew and John knew, before we get this story going, we've got to give our audience kind of a heads up. We've got to let them know up front that this is a story unlike any other. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not like another religion is born. This is not the Old Testament 2.0. That's not what this is. This is not there's another prophet in town. They had lived with Jesus for three years. They knew the significance of his life and his death and his resurrection and it is as if both of them, as they launched into the story of Jesus, wanted their audience, us, to understand this is different. Get yourself ready. And don't make the mistake of trying to blend Jesus into what any other religious figure you've got into your life because he's not going to fit like that. It is as if they pulled the audience way, way back and said, before we go to Bethlehem, before we talk about a star, before this gets all warm and fuzzy and silent night and away in a manger, you need to get the big picture about what it is that we're going to talk about, because this is big stuff. This is major. This is not like any other story that's ever been told. Now, we're going to look at John in just a minute, so if you want to like, find the book of John and hold a finger in John, the first chapter, you, you can go ahead and do that, but I want to first read to you from Matthew that's what uh, Andrew was, was singing for us earlier. I want to read it to you how Matthew introduced the story of Jesus. And I think that these two introductions kind of reflect the personalities of the two men that are writing them. I think as we go through today, you'll see that. If you remember, <clears throat> Matthew, before he was a, a follower of Jesus, was a tax collector. He was a bad guy. You know, he was kind of a traitor to the Jews. The Jews didn't like him. The Romans were using him. He was you know, somebody that couldn't keep the law. He was not welcome in the temple or the synagogue. He was alienated from God. And as far as he was concerned, um, it just he, he, you know, he was an outsider. He didn't really fit in. And yet Jesus called him and he ends up writing one of the gospel accounts. 
John, on the other hand, grew up pretty much groomed to follow in his father's footsteps. He was going to basically carry on in the family's fishing business, and he was probably a pretty good boy. He was a, a, a law keeper. You would have probably thought that, that John was a gentle man, you know, a, a guy that, that you, you would not fear being around. John would come to be known as the one whom Jesus loved. How'd you like that to be your title, right? Like, hi, my name's Brett. I'm the one whom Jesus loved. I mean, you think you wouldn't drop that everywhere you went? Uh, that's, what they, that's what they call him in the New Testament. So these two guys, with their different perspectives on Jesus, launch into their stories from, from their two different perspectives, essentially trying to communicate the same thing. Now here's what Matthew did. Matthew knew that his audience was predominantly Jewish, and Matthew knew that his Jewish audience would assume that if Jesus were the Messiah, that in some way he would come from the lineage, the line of David. And so to build his case and to set the tone that the, of the fact that Jesus actually was the Messiah, Matthew knew that his audience was going to ask one question. And the one question was, is he related to David? Because if he's not related to David, you just need to stop talking because we don't want to hear it. The Messiah has to be related to David. So Matthew, maybe tongue-in-cheek, possibly to make a humorous point, begins his gospel with a lineage, a genealogy. If you read the King James Bible and you open it to Matthew, it starts out, you start hearing about the begats. In fact, that's what the name of the song that you just heard, that's what it's called, is Matthew's begats. Uh, Matthew does something very unusual. He, he um, it, it wasn't unusual that you would launch into a, a, the story of a famous person with some kind of genealogy. That was not unusual. What's unusual is that Matthew chose uh, is what he chose to do with his genealogy, because he does some things differently. And to put things in the, fa- in the face of his readers that, that they couldn't possibly miss. It's, I mean, he's, he's going to try to make a very specific point, that this is not just another special person, but that Jesus has a unique claim, and that Jesus is going to have a very unique message. It's interesting, if you study ancient history or ancient literature, in the genealogies that we have from antiquity, the genealogies of kings and genealogies of emperors, they were the only ones that could afford to have somebody, they, could, they were the only ones that could afford to pay somebody to write a lineage for them or, or write a history of their world and their family. People didn't walk around writing in detail the, the family history or the family tree of a Jewish carpenter. They just normally didn't do that. They didn't write genealogies for the, you know, the local fishermen. That wasn't going to happen. You only get genealogies on spectacular people whose lineage is very important. And it's very unusual that we even have a genealogy of the lineage of Jesus. But if you study ancient history and antiquity, here's what you find. When kings and emperors would hire historians to tell their story, there would be a genealogy that would link them back and show the world that, in fact, they belonged in the the whole lineage, that they should be on the throne. It was kind of a way to validate, a kind of a way to say, hey, look, I, I know I'm supposed to be here. I want you to know that I'm supposed to be here. But what you find in those genealogies is that oftentimes there were gaps. There would be sections that weren't really complete. And whereas someone would have had a great-great-grandson, instead of given all the names between the great-great-grandfather and the great-great-grandson, there would be these gaps, and it would say, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then they'd move on. And they would leave people out, and historians got to be fairly frustrated by this. this you know, would, they, they wanted to have things complete. Historians like to have things complete. And they would say, why did they leave these people out? You know, there are too many years for too few people, and it's not making sense to us. 
And, and what they have come to conclude is this, that when there were, was somebody in the king's lineage or the king's family that was an embarrassment, the king just basically said, well, just leave them out. Okay, we don't really want anybody to know that, that they belong to us, so don't even put their names in there. And, I mean, you know, back in the day, if the king told you to do that, that's what you did. If you didn't do what the king said, off with your head. So, um, you know, if he said hide them, you, you hit them. Now, I don't know what it's like in your family lineage and your history, but you're likely going to gather with your family for Christmas is there like that one weird person that nobody wants to be around that when you leave, everybody talks about and everybody's like, oh, can you believe? And if you're sitting here right now and you can't think of that person, <laughs> anybody have a family member that if they were going to write your family genealogy and your lineage, you would kind of look and say, don't put them in there, Okay. Just don't put them in there. I mean, you can't put Uncle Tommy in there. He's going to make us look bad. I mean, are you kidding me? Do you remember what he did, you know, five years ago? I mean, he's the guy that hands off his adult beverage and says, hey, y'all, watch this. You know, I mean, it's, he's that guy. I mean, you, you, you don't want him, you don't want him in, in your family history. And these kings would make sure that there was no one publicly associated, you know, that, that they were never publicly associated with criminals with traitors, with people who had a bad past. But what Matthew does is unbelievable. He goes out of his way to make sure that his audience knows that they don't miss the fact that Jesus comes along with, with some, a line of people that many of whom are an embarrassment to the Old Testament. Many of them are an embarrassment to the Jewish race. Some of the stories that are, that are in Jesus' lineage would be rated R or NC-17. Um, you know, I would probably balk at telling some of those stories, some of the things about some of those people in church. And these are the people that are related to Jesus. When you go through the lineage, these are the names that, that kind of pop up. And in this long genealogy of Jesus, Matthew says it's men, it's fathers and sons, fathers and sons, fathers and sons. And then he goes out of his way to mention three women. And they're the wrong three women. Okay, if you were going to mention three women in Jesus' lineage, you could have picked all kinds of great women. No, Matthew kind of stops on these three women that you would, you, know, you would think that no one would want to be associated with these gals. And here he is trying to build a case for Jesus as having divine origins. Matthew just kind of goes out of his way to make sure that his audience knows that in the lineage of Jesus, there are some grade A sinners. Grade A, okay? Worst of the worst. I mean, these people have done things that you, you can't possibly imagine. And in his message, it is simply this. God went out of his way to link into and to weave into the tapestry of Jesus' past sinners of epic proportions. People who did things that you would never dream of doing yourself. And instead of skipping over them, it's as if Matthew kind of highlights them and puts them in boldface type. Like, why would he do that? Here's why. Because Matthew knew that in setting up the coming of Jesus, he did not want his audience to miss the point that this is not simply another teacher. This was somebody with a unique purpose and a unique call of God on his life. And consequently, he wanted the world to know and his Jewish audience to know, hey, yeah, he is from the line of David, but let's get all the dirt on the table. Let's make sure that everybody knows 
why he came in the first place. Because this is why he came, because there is dirt in the family lineage. Listen to this, and I, I just want to read this to you, and then we'll look at John together in a, in a minute. But uh, Because Matthew illustrates, and John kind of, he, he does this more in teaching terms. John is going to be the one a little bit later to kind of put the theological kind of stuff on it. But, but Matthew just kind of throws it out there. Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> this is how it opens. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, he didn't need to bring up their mother. Nobody else is going to bring up the mother. If they're doing a lineage, nobody else is bringing up the mother. Do you know anything about the history and the story of Tamar? The story of Tamar is so unbelievable and so scandalous that I would have to be very, very careful if I'm ever going to preach on the story of Tamar. And Matthew says, Y'all remember Tamar, don't you? And, and, you know, Jesus' Jewish audience is like, yeah, we remember Tamar. Why are you bringing her up? Well, I just wanted you to know that the Messiah is related to Tamar. And they would have said, quit saying that name. We all know the story. It's gross, and we don't want to think about it. It's as if Matthew's just going, Tamar, Tamar, Tamar. Don't want you to miss it. want you to understand Tamar is in the lineage of Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, way back there in the line of Jesus is this woman that does this unbelievable thing that has been a part of the story that you probably wouldn't want to tell in church. He goes on. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother, now we're getting someplace good, but he's going to bring up mothers again whose mother was Rahab. Now, Rahab had a nickname. You remember Rahab's nickname? I'm going to say the first part. You fill in the blank. Rahab the... It's cool, because I get old school and new school. I get Rahab the harlot, and I get Rahab the prostitute. Now, I'm just going to ask you a question. Give you. I'm going to do something you probably didn't want to do when you walked into church this morning, but I want you to revisit the worst thing you've ever done in your life, the thing you don't want anybody to know, the stain that is the stain. I mean, I know we got all kinds of stains, but the one stain, you're probably even right now thinking, Brett, I don't want to think about it, don't want to think about it. What is that one thing? And how would you like to go through the rest of your life known as your first name and fill in the blank, whatever it is that could be associated with you. How would you like that to be your, your legacy? Rahab the prostitute. This wasn't Rahab the woman of virtue. This was Rahab, why did we bring her up? Right, like why did she have to come? This was Rahab who wasn't even Jewish. She, she's a Canaanite woman. She wouldn't even be in the lineage of anybody that was significant in Jewish culture. And yet Matthew says, you do remember Rahab, and they're like, yes, yes, we, we remember Rahab. Would you please move on? No, let's pause. Let's pause. Rahab? Now, why is he doing that? These are the people that you leave out. These are the people that you put in, in behind. These are the people that you leave your family gathering at Christmas trying to forget about. And yet, right out of the box, Matthew begins the Christmas story, the coming of Jesus with a genealogy, and he goes out of his way to make sure everybody knows what kind of people 
God is related to. He wants everybody to know what kind of people God chose to be a part of the story of Christmas. It's unbelievable. It goes on, and then he really rubs their noses in it. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, again, we're coming to something good. And Jesse, the father... The, the, the father of King David. In other words, so see, Jesus was in fact related to King David. But Matthew couldn't just leave it alone. He couldn't just say David was the father of Solomon and Solomon was the father of... No, no, no. Listen to what he says. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You remember that story? In other words, he can't just go on and say David was the father of Solomon, Solomon was the father of... No, he says David was the father of Solomon, who was the mother, who, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And all the Jewish audience knows exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about David and Bathsheba. You see, Bathsheba was Solomon's mom. And it's as if Matthew wanted to pause right there for a second and say, well, would you looky there? Look who shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. The man who was killed by your famous king, King David, in order to have his wife. And wouldn't you know it, of all of David's wives, of all of David's children, God chose Bathsheba, whom he shouldn't have even been married to, to begin with, to bear a son, Solomon, who was in the line in the genealogy of Jesus. What's he getting at? Why would he do that? It seemed totally unnecessary. Just to make the point that he's related to David. Why did you have to go all the way back to Abraham? Why did you have to bring up these women? Why did you have to camp out on the worst part of David's life? I mean, yes, David is known as the man after God's own heart. You had to pick the worst thing about David's life, and that's what you highlighted? That's what you're going to associate with Jesus? And here's the reason, I think. Because Matthew and John lived in a culture very much like the culture we live in. They lived in a culture where the focus was men and women who were constantly trying to build their platform so that they could approach Jesus. Men and women were constantly looking to build a platform of personal righteousness upon which they could stand. Men and women who were trying to mount up good deeds and have a platform and say, hey God, what do you think? What about me? Will you answer my prayer? What about me? Can I come into heaven? And, you know, if you were to imagine God looking at someone like that and saying, well, why? You know, their answer would be, well, take a look. Look at the platform I'm standing on. Look at my good deeds and my righteousness and my blessability. Dear God, aren't I something special? That was man's approach back then. And it's for a lot of people, even today, that's their approach. You see, in our culture, it kind of sounds like this. God, nobody's perfect, but I'm, I'm more perfect than a lot of people. God, I pay my taxes. God, I'm in church today. Don't particularly understand the sermon right now, but I'm in church today. God, I've tried to be a good parent. I've kept the, ten, the nine, eight, seven commandments. I've kept seven commandments. Um, God, I'm a good person, and, and, and as I come to you and ask to spend an eternity in heaven, God, can I come to you on the basis of my personal goodness, my righteousness, my platform, my introduction to you is how good I am. <laughs> and Matthew and John lived in a culture that was all about this. 
And their concern was this. As we launch into the story of Jesus, as we launch into this story of Christmas, and we talk about a baby, they did not want their audience, not for one minute, they didn't want them to think that this was more of the same. This wasn't the law revisited. This was something new. This wasn't something else to do. This wasn't, hey, let me add to what you're already trying to do. Matthew and John go out of their way to say, you know what? This is not a, this is, this is not a story about gaining access to God through personal righteousness. That's not what it's going to be about. This has absolutely nothing about building some kind of platform for God. This isn't about your goodness or your promises or your rededication or your, your resolutions or your plans. Forget all that stuff. It's as if Matthew and John said, before we open up the story, understand it has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with this. And Matthew's saying, and I'll prove it to you. Because your God went out of his way to weave into the Christmas story people who have no platform to stand on. Prostitutes, liars, murderers, thieves, dishonest people. And for some reason, that was not an obstacle to God to keep these people out of the story. And I think from Matthew's perspective, he would have said, you know, that's my point. I think that's what Matthew would have said, exactly my point. You see, Matthew, unlike John, had a past. He was like some of us. Matthew, unlike John, knew that if he was going to make sure, that, that if it was up to making sure he was going to have something to stand on, you know, if my relationship to God is based on that I've been good, boy, I'm in trouble because I don't have any good deeds and I don't really have any promises. Matthew was like us. He had no platform. There, there was nothing holy or righteous. He, you know, he lives in this holy and righteous culture. That's what everybody's pursuing. That's, that's the, in, in, in Matthew's day, that's the only way you get to God is holy and righteous. You've got to build the platform. So he spends time with Jesus and he spends this time with Jesus and he discovers Jesus is offering me a new way. There's a new approach to God. And it was overwhelming to Matthew. And I think he must have just reveled in the fact that in Jesus' ancestry were all these people that were just like him. That when it came to personal righteousness, he did not have a leg to stand on, but there were men and women in Jesus' lineage that didn't have a leg to stand on either. That there were men and women that you would point to and go, oh, let's don't talk about them. On the other hand, John gives us the theology behind it. Here's how John said it. John doesn't give us illustrations. John goes a little more theological. John chapter 1, verse 1. Here's how he launches into the story of Jesus, if you want to say the, G the Christmas story. In the beginning, in other words, not in Bethlehem, John says, no, we're going to go way back. I don't want anybody to confuse this babe with, with the other people who have come. In the beginning was the Word, and that was John's reference to Jesus. And the Word was God, and the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him, and John is going, okay, I want this to be clear. You know, I don't know how much of this you're going to get, so I want to make sure that this makes sense to you. John says, you need to, be, to, to understand the backdrop that for all that we are about to launch into, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Your Bible may say has not comprehended it or does not understand it. 
And and the skeptic would hear something like this and say, oh, now, come on, now, wait a minute. Jesus is the light? I mean, I've heard that, yeah, but you say he was shining in the darkness. You make it sound like the whole world was dark. Brett, the whole world wasn't dark. Surely you know that there were good people in the world. Surely you know that when Jesus came, there were righteous men and women. It wasn't all darkness. It, It wasn't Jesus is the light and the world is dark. That's too sharp of a contrast. To which John and Matthew would say, no, no, that's the truth. That's the point that we're trying to get across. That we live in a world where there are shades of gray. We live in a world where I compare me to you and me to other people, and, and we live in a world where I'm better than some and not as good as others, and we live in a world where God kind of fact, we think God kind of factors that in and, and our relationship with him. We live in a world where my good deeds count for something in a relationship with God. And Matthew and John are saying, and the point we're trying to make is that before you read the rest of the story, that's not true. See, when Jesus came into the world, it was all equally dark. Our eyes have so adjusted that we see shades of darkness, but from the perspective of heaven, it was all dark. The lights were out, and Jesus shows up on the scene in total darkness. And we hear that and we say, yeah, but that's, that's so extreme. And Matthew and John are saying, I know, that, that's why it's such an incredible story. That's why we're telling you this, because it's different than anything we've ever been taught, and it's different than the way we grew up. And, and in an understanding the contrast, you begin to understand the significance of who Jesus was and the significance of this story as it begins to unfold. Verse 9, the true light, that is Jesus, The true light that gives light to everyone, assumption, everyone needs light, okay? Everyone needs light. The people who have the big box to stand on, the people who have a little box to stand on. The people who think they've made it and have arrived, he says, no, no, every man and woman needs the light that Jesus brought. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. He's talking about the nation of Israel. But his own did not receive him. And then he writes this really, really important word. Yet. Yet. In other words, he says, Jesus came into the world and the people who'd been looking for him didn't recognize him. While they were out there trying to build their platform of righteousness, while they were trying to look good enough, while they were trying to be perfect and, and, and look better than everybody else. And, and, and he says, he, the answer to that is he shows up and everybody's so busy looking after their righteousness, trying to figure out a way to approach God, the nation and culture of Israel did not recognize Jesus. And then he writes this big word, yet to all who did receive him, and he thinks, wait a minute, I better, I better clarify that. I, I need to write more than that. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if Matthew could have been there, looking over John's shoulder as he writes this out with his pen, he would have said, that was me. That was me. I was one of the people who had no access. I was one of the people who had no personal acts of righteousness. I was dead in the water. There's no hope for me. And I remember the day Jesus walked up to me and he looked me in the eye and he said, I want you to follow me. And I followed and I listened and I learned. And then I realized on the day after his resurrection, he had given me a gift. And it wasn't about earning or doing, it was a gift. And I received and I believed 
And in that day, me, unworthy Matthew, like many of the people that are in that genealogy, I became a child of God. Not through my own acts, which are just simply not going to be good enough to get me to heaven, but I became a child of God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And again, when you hear the word righteous, I want you to think right standing with God. Okay? To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he goes and he finishes it up this way. Verse 14. The word became flesh, which is to say that God became man and made his dwelling among us. That's John's way of saying, look, this isn't a story we heard. This isn't something that somebody told us. We were there. All right? We saw this. We, we were with him. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of, and I think maybe John paused for a minute. I think he's getting ready to write this out. Uh, you know, his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who, who came from the Father, full of, and I think he, he paused and he thought, full of grace and truth. He wasn't full of the law, he wasn't full of restriction, he wasn't full of condemnation. And he wasn't full of, hey, you know, God's big and you're not, so get your act together. He wasn't full of that. And he wasn't full of, you know, telling me about all the consequences for my sin. He was full of grace and truth. He was full of giving us what we didn't deserve and withholding from us what we did deserve. He was full of grace and truth. And in the very end, down in verse 17, he ends it like this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the story of Christmas is the story of contrasts. The story of Christmas is a story that was told to a group of people who thought that they were, the only way they were ever going to get to God was through keeping the rules and through being good enough. And, 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 you know, you have to earn it and you have to do this and you have to stop doing that. And the thing that I think Matthew and John are trying to communicate, and I think that that what everybody feared at that point was, I'm not ever going to make it. I'm not going to measure up. They did not want people to read their story and think this is more of the same. This is more doing. This is more earning. This is more keeping the list. And I've got to stop doing that. that. That was their fear. They didn't want anybody to read their stuff and think, well, that's what we're communicating. Because that's all there ever had been. And that's really all there's ever been since. See, every other world religion, every other approach to God is, I'm going to do my very best, and then I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to hope God says that's good enough. That, that's really kind of the approach of every other world religion. You know, you do your best, and at the end, God says, well, I guess that's good enough. And Matthew and John come along, and they say, no, it's something entirely different than that. It's not about receiving, um, you know, somebody's attaboy or something like that. It's about receiving life. It's about receiving light. It's about becoming a child of God. Simply by receiving, by putting our faith in who Christ is and what he did on the cross. See, here's what's interesting about Jesus' life. He did not dumb down God's standard for us. He didn't say, look, none of you are going to make it anyway. None of you are ever going to be good enough, so I'm going to make it easier for you. That's not what happened. Jesus came along and he made it harder. You see, when Jesus came along, there was a law and everybody's trying to keep it, and here's the problem. We couldn't live up to it. Nobody. Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, it's like, you, you, you're going to try, but you're not going to get there. So it was already hard. 
And then Jesus comes along and he elevates it. He, he makes it even harder. He's teaching one day and he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. And everybody went, yeah, you're right. And I've never murdered. I never touched the guy. I wanted to touch the guy, but I didn't touch the guy. Jesus hears that. He says, well, if you've, if you've got hatred in your heart, you've murdered in your heart. So you're guilty. He pushed it. He said, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. And, you know, they would say, well, Jesus, I never touched her. I never touched her. I may have wanted to touch her, but I didn't touch her. And Jesus said, well, I tell you what, if, if you've touched her in your heart, in your mind, you've committed adultery. See, he raised the standard. But instead of condemning everybody, he didn't. He didn't condemn. It's like he had everybody set up to condemn them, like everybody knew they didn't measure up, and, and you know, the ball's on the tee for Jesus. He can whack it. It's like, I got them all right where I want them. But Jesus was not known for condemnation. Remember the woman caught in adultery? They bring her to Jesus, and he says, you're forgiven. Now, I love telling this story to people, especially Christians who know the story, because I always intentionally leave part of it out. I'll talk about the part where he forgives the woman caught in adultery. And then I'll act like there's nothing more to the story. And, and inevitably, some uh, person who's gone to church their whole life will say, yeah, but Brett, there's more to that story. You left something out. What's the part that I left out? He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you know how we've interpreted that for most of our life? You know how most people, when they read that, read that verse? It's kind of like, neither do I condemn you. Now, don't do that anymore. Stop sinning. Cut it out. Knock it off. You know how I hear Jesus say that? Here's how I hear Jesus make that statement. You are forgiven. But don't do that anymore. That's not good for you. I love you. I want what's best for you. And this thing you're doing, that's not best for you. That, that's going to bring you a bunch of grief and a bunch of heartache. Trust me, that's going to cause problems you don't want. Jesus is saying, look, I love you. I don't, I don't tell you not to sin because I, I, I want to be some kind of cosmic killjoy. I don't want you to sin because it's sin that jacks up your life, and I love you too much to let you jack up your life. See, here's what I don't get. You understand that as a parent of your own kids. You set things out of bounds for them, not because you're trying, you don't ever say no to your kids just to be mean to them, right? You love your kids. You want to say yes to your kids, but there are certain things that you know you can't say yes to that. Because it's not good for them. And if they get into that, that could go places. It's, it's not going to end well. And Jesus looks at the woman caught in adultery and says, don't do that. I love you. I don't want to see you jack up your life like that. Do you know why he didn't condemn Matthew, Matthew and John will say? Because to condemn men for sin is like condemning the sun for being hot. It's like condemning water for being wet. I mean, that's just who we are. That's the point. We're sinners. And it's because of what we are that God gave us the one that he did. Not a lawgiver. Not simply a teacher. Not an example. But a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the challenge is this for you and for me. And we men and women who, who, even in our Christianity, in our church going, in our Bible reading, are we men and women that have missed the message of Christmas? 
Have we somehow not really downloaded all this completely? Have we started to try to come to God based on, well, God, this is what I've done, and you know, I'm, I'm going to do better, and I, God, I promise, and I'm going to rededicate, and I'm going to, you know, God, I'm just going to do that better. Or are we men and women who would be willing to transfer our trust and say, God, I'm counting on you for my goodness. I can't point to anything that I did that would be enough to be able to get me into heaven. My platform is a platform that you built for me through Jesus. It's not any platform I've built for myself. It is his righteousness. It is his work on the cross that I even come to you. That is the message of Christmas. And before John and Matthew launched into babies in a manger and stars in Bethlehem, they knew that we needed to know up front This is unlike any story that's ever been told. This is not religion repackaged. This is a brand new thing and a brand new day through Jesus. We have been given the gift of relationship. So as we move into the Christmas season, I just want to ask you one question. I want to describe four different kinds of people for you this morning. There are four kinds of people. There's there's the person who says, I don't need God. I don't need the church. I don't need any of that. I'm my own self-contained thing. Keep all that to yourself. They're probably not going to come to church at Cross Lane or anywhere else. Then there's a group of people who, they have their head hung. And they're saying things like this. Well, Brett, if you knew what I did last night, you wouldn't even want me to come to church. If you knew what I was thinking when I walked in the door, you, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. I mean, I would kind of like to come to Cross Lane and be a part of things, and I'd like to think that I could be included in this whole Jesus thing you're talking about. But, Brett, you don't know where I was last night. You don't know what I was doing. And I don't think I belong. That's a person. Then there's a group of people who are doing this. They're kind of leaning on some of their goodness and some of their, you know, they've been able to do some good things. I gave some money and I helped some people and I worked at the homeless shelter and I, you know, God, I did, did you see all that? Did you see, but I need Jesus a little, but look at what I did. And they kind of lean. They don't put all their weight on the stool. They've got some of their weight on their feet. That's what a lot of people in churches are doing. They're kind of leaning. You know, I'm good. I've done some good stuff. I'm not total wreck and, and, you know, a, a total mess up. I've done some good stuff. But where I want us to be and where I want everybody to understand that they can be is full trust in what Jesus has done for me. And I put all my weight on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, understanding that it is his righteousness that gives me the platform to come to God. See, Romans tells us this. I love this. Romans tells us that we have been given the gift of the righteousness of Christ. Here's what that means. That means when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. If you've given your life to Christ, if you've said, God, what you did on the cross, you did for me, I accept that, I want to be forgiven. That's really all we're talking about is, have you received the gift of forgiveness? I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to receive that gift. Why wouldn't everybody want to receive that gift? And when you accept that gift, God looks at you and he says, ah, the righteousness of Christ on you. You're a saint. He doesn't see all your sin and all your mess. You know what he sees? 
the holiness, the pure white holiness of Jesus. Now, are you pure and holy and righteous on your own? Absolutely not. But see, you've got the gift of the righteousness of Christ. That's what the Christmas message is about. And that's what I want us to understand. That's who we are in Jesus. We have no platform on our own. The platform was given to us by Christ. Let's pray together before we go home. Father, I don't know who in the room thinks that they have to work and earn their way to you, but I pray that we've made it crystal clear this morning that that is no way to come to Jesus. It's not going to work. The only righteousness that God will accept is the righteousness of Jesus, and that is given to us. Romans tells us it is a gift. It has been given to us. And the question is, will we receive it? It's not about a list I'm keeping. It's not about how good I've been. It's not about how many dollars I gave to church or how many times I went on a Sunday. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It has everything to do with, did I put my faith in Jesus' death on the cross for my sins, and have I been forgiven? And Jesus stands with an outstretched hand and he offers everyone in this room this morning his forgiveness. A bunch of us have already received that. A bunch of us have not. And Father, for the ones who have not, I pray that you would help them to see it is as simple as saying yes. Yes, God, I am a sinner. Yes, God, I cannot do this on my own. I've tried. I cannot be perfect. Yes, God, I need to be forgiven. And Father, when we do that, we place our faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything changes, and we are set free. So Father, this morning, those of us who have received that gift fall to our knees collectively, and we say one great big thank you. We are so thankful for Jesus. Father, for the one maybe that is in here today that has never done that, I pray that you would be moving in their heart. You would help them to see that you are not a God that wants to put some heavy yoke or burden on them. You are a God who longs to forgive them and welcome them into the family. So, Father, we just worship you, tell you that we love you. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.